If you'd like to um, <clears throat> turn in your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3 uh, in the Black Pew Bibles. That's on page 992. Uh, but before we dig into the text, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, about authority uh, within the church. So Christ, when he created the church, he gave the church authority, spiritual authority within this world. Uh, and he gave to the church the responsibility to care for all believers. And he, uh, that, that's in Matthew 18. And he also called the church to have responsibility for what it is that they are taught. Um, and that's, that's in Galatians 1. And so from the outset, from the very beginning of the book of Acts, uh, the church selected men from among them to provide guidance and assistance in discharging those responsibilities. Uh, we see in Acts 6, the church selected uh, men as deacons to serve the needs of widows uh, within the church. And then in Acts 20, uh, which we covered almost a year ago now, um, we see Paul calling together the Ephesian elders uh, to make sure that they understood the task that was being set before them. Um, and so in Acts 20, uh, 28, Paul says to them, where did we go here? Uh, here we go. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three days I did not cease, day, night, or day, to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Uh, I coveted no one's gold, silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So there's three phrases that Paul uses in this passage to describe these leaders that he's gathered together. Uh, one of them is, is this word elders. And that would have um, been pulled from the context of the Jewish synagogue, the, the, the gathering of the Jewish believers. And these were older men who were responsible for passing on knowledge and wisdom within the synagogue. Uh, there's another word that he uses, um, overseer. Uh, and and it can sometimes be a bishop. Uh, this would have been pulled from the Greek culture. These were uh, Greek administrators. They were responsible for the smooth functioning of government. Uh, they were superintendents. They were dischargers of responsibilities. And there's also this idea of, of a pastor, of shepherding the flock, caring for the sheep, being a shepherd. Uh, and this echoes Christ's position as the great shepherd. That was one of the ways that Jesus described himself, right? As the great shepherd. Uh, and he charged Peter. Remember when he restored Peter to his position? He said, care for my sheep. 
And so there's, there's these three different facets to one role, this role of elder, passing on knowledge and wisdom, this role of overseer, of seeing to the smooth functioning, and this role of, of shepherd, caring for the sheep, shepherding the flock. And uh, through the rest of um, the time this morning, I'm going to use the word elder to describe that role because it's got the least amount of cultural baggage associated with it. And I don't want to deal with that baggage right now, so we're just going to leave it behind. Um, so these were the men that God raised up to lead this church. And they're almost always referred to as, as a group, uh, as, as a plurality of leadership, a group of elders. And I think that that's wise. Turns out that God knows what he's doing when he designed the church. Um, because it, it, it's wise to share leadership across a group of people because those elders benefit from distribution of that workload and from accountability to one another. Um, Anyway, that's an aside. Um, so now, at this point, in 1 Timothy, Timothy has been sent back to the church in Ephesus after a decade or more uh, to help lead that church. And part of that charge from Paul to Timothy has been to help him, or to have him identify those among the congregation whom God has raised up to be elders. So let's take a look at the passage in uh, 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace." into a snare of the devil. So these were instructions given to Timothy to help him identify those men who are qualified to be elders. And at first glance, these qualifications are pretty unremarkable, right? These are really simply what we should expect to see from a mature Christian. They're kind of familiar to us. And it seems, it, it seemed to me, the first thing that I said, well, this is, this is the, this is simply the outcome of the fruit of the Spirit listed in, in Galatians 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So the fruit of the Spirit is the evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. When we first place our trust in Christ, we are given the Holy Spirit as our comforter and our guide and it's through the Spirit's work in us that we are sanctified, that we are made more like Christ, made more perfect. And we start to see this fruit. And we're told in Scripture that we can judge a tree. We can tell the difference between trees by looking at its fruit, right? If you see apples on a tree, it's an apple tree. If you see oranges on a tree, it's an orange tree. 
And so when we see the fruit of God's spirit being born on the tree of our lives, we can be reassured that God is at work within us. And so a large part of how Paul tells Timothy to identify these elders is to look for the fruit of the spirit, especially in three different contexts. So one of the, one of the largest contexts that Paul talks about here uh, is to look at the context of their lives at home. Do their home lives exhibit the fruit of the Spirit? And he makes the point that home is very much like the church in a lot of ways. And the things that make a Christ-like father and husband also make a Christ-like elder. And it's, and it's two-pronged in, in Paul's approach here. The first one is, um, we find in uh, verse 2, uh, must be the husband of one wife. So faithfulness in marriage. Uh, the, the direct Greek translation there is, is, is a one-woman man. And there's a variety of interpretations here. Um, through the ages, people have said, well, that just means that he can't be a polygamist, can't be married to multiple women. Um, it's been interpreted uh, that somebody can't be divorced and remarried, or it's been interpreted that there can't be any extramarital affairs. The exact interpretation is a little bit beyond the scope of what we have time to cover this morning. But the clear piece of it is that this elder understands the biblical pattern for marriage, for relationships, and for sexuality, and follows those patterns. We saw in, in Ephesians 5 that Paul said that marriage was given to us as a picture of the gospel, right? We had the self-sacrificial love of the husband for his wife as a picture of the love of Christ for the church. And the loving, trusting submission of the wife as a picture of the submission of the church to Christ. And so the implication there in Ephesians 5 is that if someone is dishonoring the marriage covenant in some way, it shows a lack of honor to the new covenant written in the blood of Christ. He also expects to see the grace of the gospel lived down in the context of the family. So in, in, in verse 4, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not how, know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So that uh, in, in verse 4 where it says, um, keeping his children submissive, that, that word there um, is used outside of the Bible, primarily in the context of the military and rank. And so the, the idea here is that his children understand their role in the family, understand their place in the family. And that understanding is arrived at with dignity and respect on both sides. So uh, anybody familiar with Band of Brothers, the TV series? Okay. Um, <clears throat> so in, in that World War II era, you had a, a rifle platoon of you know, six, eight guys, right? And there was a platoon sergeant that was part of that platoon. And then they all, there was also generally a second lieutenant that was attached to that platoon. So six, eight, ten guys, right? Now, that platoon sergeant, he had some experience. You know, he, he, he knew which way was up. Anybody ever dealt with a second lieutenant before? 
How green are they, Dale? <laughs> Generally, they're real green, uh, and they don't really know which way's up. But despite that, that second lieutenant outranks the platoon sergeant, right? And so there's a hierarchy there, and there are roles that need to be filled there. And it doesn't mean that the sergeant knows less than that because he generally knows more. It doesn't mean that he's less experienced because he's generally more experienced. But there's an understanding there, um, not an expression of value, not of worth, but different roles to play within that platoon. And so the implication here in the text is that the problems and the decisions that a man encounters in leading his family are some of the same problems that an elder encounters in leading the church. How do we make sure that everybody in the family is growing spiritually? How do we allocate limited resources of time, money, and energy for the best outcome? How do we resolve ongoing conflict without simply leaving? How do we make sure that every member is getting what they need to grow and to mature? And so Paul intends for the marriage relationship to be a demonstration of the gospel and for the home to not just be a training ground for children, but a training ground for the parents as well. And as such, he identifies the home as being one of the primary ways that we can identify one of these elders. So in addition to looking at their lives uh, at home, he also said to look at their lives in public. Are they well thought of? Are there areas that they might fall into disgrace? And in falling into disgrace, damage the church. So that is one of the great dangers uh, to somebody in the role of an elder, is that they fall into disrepute through sexual or relational impropriety, through financial impropriety, through addictions. These are all ways that pastors in our day and age have lost their credibility and been disqualified from ministry. And the damage done when that happens is absolutely enormous. Right? Churches are torn apart. The lives of those that he has taught and led, essentially everything that he's taught is undone, is unmade in a way. And in the outside world, the witness of those who remain faithful is compromised. See, we understand sin, and we understand our battle with the flesh, and grace and forgiveness. But those around us, in our communities, may not understand these things. And will often, in some way, hold the church members responsible by proxy for the failure of church leaders. So we need to look at their lives in public. And we also need to look at their spiritual lives. Are they an example that other believers can follow? This was what Paul said, right? Not that he was perfect, but he told the Corinthian believers in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So we see here, are they self-controlled and respectable? Are they hospitable? Uh, that, that word is literally loving towards strangers. So that's not just talking about having your friends over, but inviting people you don't know to join in your life. 
This is one of the ways that, um, that my wife and her mother actually have uh, set a fantastic example for me. They've never met a stranger that couldn't become a friend in just blink of an eye. Um, and, and they um, are always finding the, the least and the lost and the lonely and inviting them in for a meal, inviting them in for longer. Uh, and I've been, I've been blessed and I've been shaped by that. <clears throat> um, are they controlled by their love for money or their love for alcohol or food or TV or any number of other false idols? Are they quarrelsome and violent? One commentator said that, uh, uh, or understood it, are they a bully by tongue or by hand? Or in contrast to that, are they gentle? See, when uh, the only other time that Paul uses that word, he uses it to describe Christ. Are they gentle? In his inward being, in his attitudes and his thoughts, is he bearing the fruit? of the Spirit. So we look at all these different aspects of their lives, their life at home, their life in public, and their inward spiritual lives. And we compare those. Are they living a life of integrity? Are they bearing the same fruit in all three of those areas? See, all of these different spheres should show us one single person. There shouldn't be a workman and a home man or a home man and a church man, but one singular, integral man bearing the fruit of a life surrendered to the glory of God. And we're not just to look for this fruit, but to look for it over a length of time. That's why he said, not a new convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit or, or pride. Paul himself underwent years of, of examination and testing and faithful service to the church in Jerusalem before being sent out as a missionary. And so the identification of an elder doesn't just rely on a week or two weeks acquaintance, but is determined by seeing what fruit is born over the course of years. Are they faithful in the long haul and demonstrating growth in these things? In a, another month or two, we're going to get to 1 Timothy 5, but it says there, uh, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. And furthermore, we don't just want to evaluate somebody at a distance, but up close. So the question becomes, how do you determine whether somebody is a drunk or a lover of money by how they act for a few hours each week at church, right? You can't. Well, it's difficult. How do you determine whether somebody manages his own household well by a few phone conversations here and there? It, you can't, really, right? See, these assessments are all predicated on having a close, ongoing contact. And with some being entwined in their lives, in a much closer way than really most of us are comfortable with. And I think that this highlights to us the importance of time spent together as a church family, time spent together in small groups, time spent serving our communities together. 
Because ultimately, I can stand up here every week and I can say all sorts of nice things. But if I'm an entirely different person, if I'm saying entirely different things when I'm at home, if I'm saying entirely different things when I'm at work, then that is a demonstration of my lack of that integration, that integrity of all of these different spheres. If all the time that we spend together is a few hours on Sunday morning, I can be a grade-A jerk at home and then come here and act humble and gracious and nobody's ever going to know the difference. So these requirements are unremarkable in that these are the requirements or these are the fruit, essentially, of the Spirit of God at work in us. But they are remarkable in a different way. They are remarkable in their weight. So it says in verse 1, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. A, a noble work is another way to say that. Um, John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, quoted Plato. Uh, and he said, uh, Plato said, Those things which are excellent are also arduous and difficult. Then he goes on to say, It is no light matter to be a representative of the Son of God in discharging an office of such magnitude, the object of which is to erect and extend the kingdom of God, to procure the salvation of souls which God himself hath purchased with his own blood, and to govern the church, which is God's inheritance. See, if you stand up these requirements, these requirements to be faithful, up close, and over the long haul, there is no man who can bear up under their weight. They will crush a man like a bug. In 2 Corinthians, Paul describes a thorn in his flesh that he was given. And we don't know what that was, but it was in his mind, his ability to minister to or, or to, to execute his ministry. He said, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly, boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So while these requirements are a great weight that nobody can bear on their own, a man who is relying on the grace of God can bear them. Not because of his own strength, but because of Christ's strength. In Philippians 4.13, it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
And then in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes again, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. So this is an acknowledgement by Paul that he is not worthy, that he is not able to carry the burden of his apostleship on his own merit, on his own strength, but that it has been God's grace that has enabled him to make it as far as he has. And God's grace to him has not been in vain. We need to remember that the very act of salvation is in and of itself a miracle, right? That's how it's described to us. Dead men being raised to life, captives being set free. And so at the very moment of our salvation, God begins working in us, changing our hearts, giving us new desires, giving us new motivations, giving us strength and perseverance that we could never have on our own. And so the miracle of salvation allows us, causes us to look at this list and instead of being discouraged or disillusioned, instead be encouraged and be emboldened. To look at this list and instead of shying away from it, go up to it and say, yes, I'm willing to submit myself to this scrutiny. Yes, I'm willing to open myself up like this in full confidence that in my success, it will be God who is responsible for that success. And in my failure, it is his grace that will see me through. But in all of this, the primary job of an elder is not just to live this out, but to teach to teach others to do the same. So the person who's described here is somebody who is so infused, so overcome, so overtaken by the love and grace and mercy and goodness and glory of God that his pursuit of God has yielded some wonderful things, has yielded some beautiful fruit. And it's his job to help others come to that same understanding to become similarly enraptured with who God is. In short, to make disciples. That is the great commission of the church, right? To make disciples. The purpose of an elder is not to grow the church. That's God's job. We don't save people. God saves people. But the purpose of an elder is to make Disciples, or at least his purpose in part, to teach what God's word says and to help apply that to our lives. That's really the only tool that an elder has, right? The Bible, the ministry of the word. It's really that singular in its focus. But it's sufficiently broad in application for God to see fit to place the church under the care of those who teach the word. So when we're presented as a church with a question about how do we budget strategically for something, that's an opportunity for the elders to instruct the church on what God's word has to say about money and priorities. When we're confronted with questions as to how we handle conflict in the church, that's an opportunity 
to look at what the Bible says about conflict resolution and humility and mutual submission. When we look at the social ills that pervade the society around us, that's an opportunity for us to learn what the Bible says about serving our world. So on each one of these subjects, an elder may not be qualified to speak into that subject on his own right, but they are qualified to teach what the Bible says on any subject. And God, as the author of Scripture, as the creator of the universe, has the right has the wisdom and the ability to speak into any topic that he pleases. And so by teaching and by shaping and by molding the heart of the church after the heart of God, under the direction of the scriptures, the elders help the church to learn how to be disciples. They help the church to learn that long obedience in the same direction. But moreover... Moreover, an elder needs to be able to teach others to do the same thing. See, the process of discipleship, the process of our Christian lives, is not a line, but it's a circle, essentially. See, as long as you draw breath, you are called to be a disciple of Christ and to be making disciples. You are not the end point of the gospel, but you are a conduit of the gospel. We as a church are called first and foremost to be disciple makers, to live our lives in close proximity to one another, physically, relationally, socially, and to learn what it means to live as a Christian. And we learn that by the study of and the application of the word of God under the guidance of those who we see are doing that well. We can call them elders, we can call them pastors, we could call them bishops, but the role is the same. Their role is to believe, to understand, apply, and live out God's word, and to teach others to do the same. Let's pray together. Father, the weight of your word, <clears throat> the weight of these requirements sits heavy, God. Because as we spend time looking in the mirror of your word, it only reveals to us how, fall sh how far short we fall. How we fail to live up to the grace that you've given us, how we fail to live up to the mercy that you've given us. But God, still you give it, and you give it more, Father. We ask that each one of us would be able to look at these requirements that you have given us for the leadership of your church 
and see them not just as descriptive father, but that we would see in them something to aspire to, something to reach for. That you would give us the desire to become more like Christ with each passing day and to help and the desire, Father, to help those around us do the same. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.